Section 25 of The Sainted Queens This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Whitman, St. Charles, Illinois. The Sainted Queens by Unknown St. Elizabeth of Hungary Chapter 7 The Saints' Residence at Kitzingen and Bomberg Return of the Crusaders with the body of the Landgrave Elizabeth returns under their protection to Wartburg The Landgraven Sophia Finding that she could do nothing to protect her daughter-in-law in Thuringia, sent secret information of her desolate position to her Aunt Matilda, the abbess of Kitzingen, and sister of her mother, the Queen of Hungary, who immediately sent trusty messengers to bring her niece and her children to the abbey. Elizabeth gladly accepted an offer, which gave her the welcome shelter of a religious house, and also enabled her once more to enjoy the company of her children and crossing the vast forests and mountains which divide thuringia from franconia she arrived in safety at kitzingen on the main where she was received by the good abbess with maternal affection she remained for some time in this peaceful shelter finding her chief consolation in following as nearly as possible the rule of the religious with whom she dwelt meanwhile her maternal uncle egbert Prince Bishop of Bamberg, having heard of her misfortunes and of her present residence at Kitzingen, sent to invite her to Bamberg as a more fitting home than a cloister for her and her children. She obeyed, perhaps somewhat reluctantly, and leaving her second daughter, now only two years old, who afterwards took the veil in the same convent, under the care of her aunt, she set off with her other children for Bamberg, where she was received by the bishop with every mark of kindness and consideration. He offered to send her to her father in Hungary, but she declined the proposal, and her uncle then assigned her the castle of Boltenstein as her residence, with a household suited her rank. Thither she repaired with her children and her faithful attendants, Isentrude and Guta, and resumed her habitual exercises of penance and prayer. The bishop, thinking that her youth and remarkable beauty, as well as her unprotected position, made a second marriage desirable for her, did all in his power to induce her to consent to a union with the Emperor Frederick, who had just lost his second wife, Yolanda of Jerusalem. This haughty and sacrilegious prince had, it seems, set his heart upon marrying the saintly widow of the good landgrave, as at another time he was bent upon a union with the beloved daughter of St. Clair, the holy Agnes of Bohemia. The Prince Bishop of Bomberg, either dazzled by the imperial suitor's rank or deceived by his well-known duplicity, urged Elizabeth to accept a hand so mighty to protect both her and her children. My lord, replied she, I had once for my lord a husband who loved me tenderly, and who was ever my true and faithful friend. I had a share in his honors and his power, 
I have had much of the splendor and riches and joys of this world. I have had all this, but I have always thought what you, my Lord Bishop, know well, that the joys of this world are nothing worth. Therefore do I desire to leave the world and to pay to God what I owe him, even the debts of my soul. You know well that all the enjoyments of the world lead to nothing but grief and torment and the death of the soul. My Lord, I long exceedingly to be with our Lord, and I have but one thing on earth to ask of him. I have two children of my Lord with me, who will be both rich and powerful. I should be very glad and grateful to our God if he should show me so much love as to call them both to himself. It does not appear that Elizabeth pleaded with the bishop the vow of chastity, which she had made during her husband's lifetime in case of his decease, but she spoke of it often to Guta and Isentrude. I have sworn, said she, to God and to my lord and husband when he was alive, that I would never belong to any other man but him. God, who reads the heart and discovers its most secret thoughts, knows that I made this vow with a simple and pure heart, and in perfect good faith. I trust in his mercy, for it is impossible but that he will defend my chastity against all the devices of men, and even, if need be, against all their violence. It was no conditional vow, subject to the good pleasure of my parents and friends, but a vow, free, spontaneous, and unconditional, to consecrate myself after the death of my well-beloved wholly and entirely to the glory of my Creator. If they dare, in contempt of the liberty of marriage, to give me to any man whatsoever, I will protest before the altar, and if I can find no other way of escape, I will cut off my nose with my own hand in order to become an object of horror to all men. The determined will of the bishop on this subject filled her heart with no little anxiety, but she had recourse to her never-failing refuge, the mercy of Jesus and the intercession of Mary, and from both she received assurances of protection which silenced her fears. And now she was summoned by her uncle to Bomberg to receive the mortal remains of that beloved husband to whose memory she had given such proof of fidelity. The companions of Louis had left his body at Otranto and gone on to Syria to accomplish their vow. Some few of them reached Jerusalem and offered gifts and prayers for his intention at the sepulchre of Christ. On their return they stopped at Otranto, and from that place they carried the bones of their beloved sovereign with royal and religious solemnity till they reached the cathedral of Bamberg where the bodies of St. Henry and St. Cunegunda reposed. There the office of the dead was solemnly chanted in the presence of all the nobles, clergy, and religious of the neighborhood. On the following day Elizabeth arrived, with her faithful Guta and Isentrude. The coffin was opened, and at the sight of the whitened bones of him who had left her full of life and love, the pent-up anguish of the widow's heart flowed forth afresh. The bystanders, deeply affected themselves, tried in vain to soothe her, but her thoughts soon turned of themselves to God, and she was calm again. I thank thee, O Lord, said she aloud, that thou hast deigned to hear the prayer of thy servant 
and to grant my intense desire to look upon the remains of my beloved, who was also thine. I give thee thanks for having thus mercifully consoled my afflicted and desolate heart. He offered himself, and I also offered him for the defense of thy holy land, and I repent me not of the sacrifice, although I loved him with all the strength of my heart. Thou knowest, O oh my God, how I love this husband, who so truly loved thee. Thou knowest that if it had been thy holy will to leave him to me, I would have preferred his beloved presence a thousand times to all the joys of this world. Thou knowest that if thou hast permitted it, I would joyfully have spent my life in misery with him, and have begged my bread with him from door to door all over the whole wide world, only for the happiness of being with him. Now I abandon him and myself wholly to thy will, and I would not, if I could, buy back his precious life at the price of one single hair of my head, unless it were thy will, O oh my God. This was the last cry of vanquished nature, the last sigh of earthly affection expiring in that young heart of twenty, under the overmastering power of the love of God. The Prince Bishop seems to have spoken no more of the imperial bridegroom. Elizabeth calmly left the church, and seating herself in a little enclosed garden adjoining the cathedral, she sent to beg the Thuringian nobles who had brought back her husband's body to come and speak with her. She rose at their approach and begged them to sit down beside her, as she did not feel strong enough to remain standing. She then, but with great sweetness and charity, told them the history of her wrongs and besought them in the name of God to defend and protect her children. The bishop came in his turn to confirm his niece's statement, and entered into the sad and shameful details of the persecution which she and her children had endured. There was a burst of noble indignation from that knightly band, as, with flashing eyes and hand on sword, they listened to the simple tale of their royal and saintly mistress, and the calm and dignified appeal of the prince-bishop to their faith and loyalty. They declared with one voice that they acknowledged the widow of their deceased lord as their liege lady and mistress, and were ready to defend her to the death. The noble Rodolph of Varila, in the name of his companions-in-arms, besought the bishop to entrust his niece and her children to their faithful guardianship. He consented, and after having celebrated a pontifical mass for the dead, sent them away with his blessing. Slowly and sadly, the mournful procession moved on to the Abbey of Reinhardsbrunn, which the good Landgrave had chosen for his burial place. The news of its approach soon spread far and wide through the land, and from the farthest ends of his dominions, high and low, rich and poor, noble and serf, bishop, priest, and monk poured forth to do him honor. The funeral rites were celebrated in the Abbey Church, in presence of the mother, the wife, and the children of Louis, and of the two young princes, Henry and Conrad, now forced to meet their injured sister-in-law, in the calm, still presence of the dead. Many miracles were wrought at the tomb of the good Landgrave, who was popularly honored as a saint, 
though the church has never set her seal to the devotion. After the funeral ceremonies were over, the Lord of Varila and his companions in arms consulted together as to the course to be pursued in order to reinstate their lady in her rights. We must now, said Rodolph, keep the faith which we have sworn to our noble prince and our lady Elizabeth, who has already endured so many miseries, or, I fear me, we shall rue it in the eternal fire of hell. It was agreed that four of the knights, headed by Rodolph of Varila, should ask an audience of the two princes and remonstrate with them on their treatment of their brother's widow and orphans. As spokesman of the party, Varila thus addressed the Landgrave Henry. My lord, your friends and vassals who are here present have prayed me to speak to you in their name. We have heard things of you in Franconia, and here also in Thuringia, so grievous that we have been utterly confounded and blush to think that in our country and among our princes such impiety, infidelity, and forgetfulness of honor should be found. What have you done, young prince, and who have been your counselors? You have ignominiously driven from your castles and your cities the wife of your brother, the poor desolate widow, the daughter of an illustrious monarch, whom you were bound, on the contrary, to comfort and honor as if she had been some vile, abandoned woman. To the slander of your own princely honor, you have exposed her to misery and left her to wander like a beggar in the streets. While your brother was giving his life for the love of God, his little orphans, whom you were bound to defend and support as a faithful guardian, have been cruelly driven from you and even forced to part from their mother, lest they should perish for hunger with her. Is this your brotherly love? Is this what you have learned from that virtuous prince, your brother, who would not thus have dealt with the lowest of his subjects? No, the rudest peasant would not have treated his fellow as you, prince, have treated your brother, while he was gone to die for the love of God. How can we trust hereafter to your faith and honor? You know well that by your knighthood you are bound to protect the widow and the orphan, yet you outrage the widow and orphans of your brother. I tell you plainly that this cries to God for vengeance. The Landgrave and Sophia burst into tears at this address. The young prince hung down his head and answered nothing. My lord, continued the brave speaker, what have you to fear from a poor lone woman, sick, sad, and solitary, without friend or ally in this country? What harm would that holy and virtuous lady have done you had she remained mistress of all your castles. What will be said of us now in other lands? I blush to think of it. Oh, shame! Shame! You have dishonored the whole country of Thuringia. You have stained your own reputation and that of your princely house. And verily I fear that the wrath of God will fall heavily upon this land unless you do penance before him, seek reconciliation with this noble lady, and restore to the son of your brother the inheritance which you have wrested from him. God made use of the bold words of the noble knight to melt a heart too young to be utterly hardened. Henry burst into tears, and after weeping for a long time in silence, he said, I repent sincerely for what I have done. I will never again listen to those by whose advice I have thus acted. 
Give me back your confidence and friendship. I will do willingly whatever my sister Elizabeth shall require of me. I give you full power to dispose of my life and my goods for this purpose. The Lord of Varela replied, It is well. It is the only way to avert the anger of God. Henry could not, however, help adding in a low voice, If my sister Elizabeth had the whole empire of Germany for her own, she would keep none of it, for she would give it all away for the love of God. Rodolph went immediately to make known the result of his remonstrance to Elizabeth. When he began to speak of the conditions to be imposed upon the landgrave Henry, she exclaimed, I want none of his cities or castles or lands or anything which can distract me, but I shall be very grateful to my brother-in-law if he will give me out of my dowry wherewithal to provide for the expenses I desire to incur for the soul of my well-beloved and my own. The knights then went in search of Henry, who came accompanied by his mother and brother. He besought Elizabeth to forgive him, assuring her that he felt the deepest remorse for his conduct. Sophia and Conrad joined their entreaties to his. Elizabeth's only reply was to cast herself into her brother's arms and weep. The rights of her children were also secured. Herman, the eldest, was acknowledged as the lawful heir of Hesse and Thuringia, the regency during his minority remaining in the hands of his uncle Henry. The crusaders then returned to their homes, and Elizabeth and her children to Wartburg. End of Chapter 7 of St. Elizabeth of Hungary Section 25